the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. This is the word to stand on for life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. The word to stand on for life is a radio ministry of Calvary Chapel in San Antonio. A live call-in show here to help you answer your questions about the Bible and how to apply the word to your daily life. For more information on Calvary Chapel, visit our website, calvarysa.com. Get your Bible questions ready and call in now to 210-340-9585. It's The Word to Stand On for Life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. Welcome to the Tuesday Show. I'm Pastor Ron Arbaugh from Calvary Chapel in San Antonio, Texas. And you have tuned in to AM630, The Word. And this is The Word to Stand On for Life, a program dedicated to taking your phone calls and answering Bible questions or life questions or pretty much anything on your heart. All you have to do is call us. You can dial 210-340-9585. That's 340-9585. If you're outside the local area, you can call toll-free at 877-630-KSLR. That's 630-5757. You can email questions to us by emailing questions at calvarysa.com, or you can send them in using our free Calvary Chapel mobile app. If you're driving in your car, the safest way to call is to use the free KSLR mobile app. Uh, hit the call now button. You'll be connected directly to our studio producer. One more time, 340-9585. Now, we don't have anything to talk about today, so let's go right to questions. The first one comes from our mobile app from Tracy. And he wants to know, are magicians like David Copperfield and Chris Angel tapping into demonic forces when applying their craft? Are magic acts in and of themselves demonic? Uh, Tracy, obviously without knowing either David Copperfield or Chris Angel, I have seen both of them occasionally, and they certainly try to play. I think it's part of their their theatrics. They try to play off the the dark side of their craft. Um, So I have no way to know if, if they're actually tapping into demonic forces. Most of the time, what magicians are doing uh, is illusions. Um, there are explanations and, and reasonable and rational explanations for the things that they do. There's been sort of a hole in this Internet age, uh, uh, an industry, cottage industry of, of exposing the tricks, exposing the way they do things. And um, um, most of them have a, a, a rational explanation. I will say this. Um, without commenting on Copperfield or Chris Angel. I have seen um, magic acts um, that I felt very clearly were tapping in to demonic forces. Um, I don't think that the acts in and of themselves are demonic if they're just tricks and just illusion. But um, I think the Christian, the discerning Christian watching something like that can um, will be able to discern whether or not they're tapping into demonic forces. You know, Paul and I we watch uh, America's Got Talent. It's one of the shows that we watch together, and and there's always magicians, and they do really really well on the program. And and a lot of them are just a sleight of hand and and fun. And uh, but we've also seen some really really dark things. And I do think that the dark side is very seductive. And I think especially for those who are trying to tap into that kind of power and certainly have no relationship with Christ, I think they could very easily fall into that. So, Tracy, again, David Copperfield, Chris Angel, I don't know for sure. Um, 
Uh, I know neither are believers. I know that based on some of the things I've heard them say and do. But uh, whether or not they're tapping into the demonic world um, is something I don't have any way of knowing. 340-9585. Here is a question from Zach. He says, what will it look like when the great falling away of Second Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 3 comes? Let me read the verse, Zach, and then we'll get to an explanation. Uh, Paul writes, don't let anyone deceive you in any way, for that day, the day of, of apostasy, will not come until the rebellion occurs and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the man doomed to destruction. So um, when that day comes, um, a couple of things are going to happen first. Uh, first and foremost, the man that we call the Antichrist is going to be revealed. And then, of course, the rebellion is going to occur. Now, the Greek word is a is the word we get our English word apostasy from. And there's lots of different opinions about what that apostasy is. Apostasy is heresy or false doctrine. Uh, but I think in context here, Zach, it's simply a, a turning away from God. So when it comes, forgetting that the Antichrist has not been revealed yet, I think it'll look much like today. I think the seeds of apostasy are already there, this rebellion against God, this falling away from the truth of God. When you start seeing professing Christians uh, doing things like uh, encouraging homosexual behavior, affirming or accepting that kind of behavior, when you see Christians who deny the, 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 the necessity of Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection, uh, I think when you see people turning away from established truths that have been believed by the Christian church for 2,000 years. Uh, I think that's what we're experiencing now, and I think that's exactly what it's going to look like. When you see people who are more ready to turn to things demonic than turn to Christ, I think we've already begun to see this slow falling away, this slow apostasy. I think in large part, Zach, it's because we have sort of lost the Bible in our modern culture. Uh, it's available to us, of course, but, but we simply don't believe it. We get questions from professing Christians like, well, how do we know that the Bible we can count on? I tell people when they ask that question all the time that they have to find out for themselves. This is an exercise that comes from the relationship that Jesus has been so kind to provide for us. But I think, in large part, when churches begin turning from the truth, all we have to do is look around, and that's what it's going to look like, because that's what it looks like now. You know, Paul says in his final letter of the New Testament in Second Timothy, he says, mark this, in the last days, the very last of the last days, there will be terrible times. Things will happen like Mothers won't love their children. People be lovers of self rather than lovers of God. People openly and brazenly do evil things. And the people in the world around those things are simply going to sort of be nonplussed by it. Some will affirm, some will approve. Others will say, oh, it's no big deal. Um, all of that, Zach, to say that I think the falling away has already become. One thing I do want to say, there is a, uh, I think, uh, sort of a, 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 a school of thought that is in deep error. Um, the, the word for apostasy, uh, some used to describe the rapture of the church, and uh, there simply isn't any biblical basis for that. So I think the world's going to look just like it looks now. People are going to have hard hearts. People are going to be talking at each other instead of talking with each other. Uh, I think people are going to hold on to grudges. I think uh, the polarization that we see in our world is going to get worse and worse. We here in this country can see just what's happened in our own political system. Nobody can talk reasonably or logically about things. We have to demonize people. That's because we've got the heart of this world instead of the heart of Christ. 
So, Zach, I hope that helps. It's the best I can do. Uh, Nancy wants to know, she said, Pastor Ron, you once explained three separate relationships we have with the Holy Spirit. Can you repeat what those three are? Nancy, I can. The three relationships are based on three Greek words in our New Testaments that describe these different relationships. Uh, the first one is uh, our English word N-I-N. In Greek, it's the word E-N. Um, uh, let, let me, let me I, I jump one ahead of myself. The first relationship we have is, is the Greek word para. Our English word would be with. It's when the Holy Spirit comes alongside of us and begins to convict us of sin, of righteousness, and judgment. Um, for an unbeliever, we, we can all of us remember when that happened to us. One day we did something that was terrible and uh, we didn't feel any conscience at all. The next day we did something that was similar or, or, or even uh, not as bad, but we were deeply convicted. That's the Spirit coming alongside of us. And that Greek word is para. That's when the Holy Spirit begins to point to Jesus. Jesus said, when he, the Spirit, comes, he will convict the world of sin, of righteousness, and judgment. But he will also convince us that Jesus is the source of that righteousness. So that's the first experience. We might think about it like the, the wooing experience. It's when Jesus comes alongside in the person of the Holy Spirit and, 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 and convinces you that he loves you, convinces you that he is an answer for sin, convinces you that you are loved by God. That's para. The second relationship is the one I started with, in, E-N in Greek, and I-N in our English. And it's when he comes to live within you, upon your profession of faith, believing that Jesus Christ is Lord, believing that he was crucified and risen from the dead. Um, and, and you are born again. You surrender your life to Jesus. He comes and lives within you. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 14 says he's given as a deposit, guaranteeing our inheritance. Uh, the post-resurrection Jesus breathed on his disciples and said to them, Receive ye the Holy Spirit of God. It's the breath of life. And that's when we have new life, Nancy. That's when we know for sure that the Spirit lives in us, that we belong to God, and we know that power is available to us that wasn't available to us before. And that leads to the third experience. And that's what we would call in English the upon experience. When he comes upon you, the Greek word is epi, E-P-I. And when he comes upon you in power, he empowers you to do whatever it is he's asked you to do. You know, Jesus said in Acts 5.32, he gives the Holy Spirit to those who obey him and so for the power of God, the obedience is the trigger for that power. I don't want anybody to think that they can be filled with the power of God and living in rebellion against God or living in open or unconfessed sin. For the power of God to rest with us and upon us, we have to be walking in fellowship with God. And every time you see... Uh, for example, in the book of Acts, you'll see miracles that are being done, or you'll see large groups of people being saved, or you'll see uh, demons being cast out, things like this. That's the epi, or the upon experience of the Holy Spirit. Now, Nancy, the most important thing I'm going to say to you is this one. We, all of us, need that final experience every day. And I'll be so brazen as to say we need it all day. It's not enough to get up in the morning, have a five-minute devotion, say a quick prayer, and then go on about your day. You can't leave Jesus at home. He's the source of the power. It's like so many of you with your cell phone. Paul and I, we laugh because my cell phone, if it ever gets to like 95%, it's a crisis in our house. We've got to plug it in. Well, a lot of us are like those cell phones that are always running out of battery juice. People are looking always for places to recharge their battery. Well, for you and for me as Christians, Nancy, the only place we can recharge is in the presence of the Lord. When we're walking with Him, when we're talking to Him, and we're being obedient to Him, then whatever it is that you come upon, you have the power to do whatever it is Jesus asks you to do. Think for a minute about Peter looking at the beggar at the beautiful gate. Guy was expecting to get something from them, Luke writes in Acts. He had no idea what God wanted to do. And Peter, at one moment, again filled with the Spirit, heard the Spirit say, 
Time to get up and walk. There's power to heal. I'm always amazed at how nervous Peter must have been. This would be the first time he'd done anything like that. So suddenly he saw Jesus do all these miracles and and into the power of the Holy Spirit. He says, silver and gold have I none, but what I have I give to you in the name of Jesus. Rise and walk. And then I always think that he had to hold his breath, maybe with one eye kind of half open, thinking, did he get up? Did he get up? But of course, we know the answer that is that he, he did. Well, there are times not to heal people like Peter did, but there are times when at work, God will divinely design an appointment for you. Or you'll see somebody who's hurting, and he'll give you insight into what's going on in that person's heart. Paula is the best at this. There are times when Paula will we'll be talking to somebody. I'm the pastor, you know. We'll say, hey, how you doing? And we're talking to him. And Paula will be looking at him kind of funny or looking at her kind of funny. And she'll say, how are you doing? I mean, really, how are you doing? And over and over in our lives, I've seen people just break down crying like, how did you know? Well, the Holy Spirit came upon her and gave her sort of a discerning spirit or word of wisdom or word of knowledge. So to function in the power of the gifts of the Spirit, we have to be with Jesus, and that's something that we need every minute of every day. The minute we forget the presence of Jesus, we've lost connection with the power. Our batteries are gone. So stay with Jesus, be with Jesus, and there's always going to be that kind of power. So, Nancy, I hope that is uh, a good answer for your question. 340-9585, the phones always get started quiet, and then we pick up some pace, but we'd love to get those calls early. Uh, here is an anonymous question. Living by the Sermon on the Mount is impossible, so what's the point of it? Uh, anonymous, that's the point of it. You know, I've seen people just try to almost kill themselves trying to live by the Sermon on the Mount and beat themselves up and condemn themselves because they can't. Um, Well, that's the whole point. Jesus gave us the Sermon on the Mount to explain to us why we need him. And Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, he goes to a, a place spiritually that we can't even begin to imagine. Blessed are you when you mourn or blessed are the poor in spirit? What we'll see in the world that we live in, those are the things we try not to be, not to do. And Jesus said, but it's in those states that you look for me. He goes on, this is Matthew 5 through 7. He goes on and says things to the listeners. He said, you know, you've heard that it was said, thou shalt not... Um, commit adultery but I say unto you if you look at a woman with lust you're already guilty of adultery so the whole point of the Sermon on the Mount Anonymous is that he's raising the standard and in essence you can go through Matthew chapter 5 through chapter 7 and you come away with the conclusion that there's no way I can live like this I need Jesus to do it for me That was the purpose of the law, not so that they would kill themselves trying to keep the law, but that they would come to the end of themselves. And then when Jesus appears in human flesh, he simply raises the level a whole bunch of notches and says, if you want to get to heaven without me, you've got to be this good. Not just the letter of the law, but the spirit behind the law. Because that's where our hearts come into play. So, Don't try to live by it. That will destroy you. But because you can't do it, then we surrender to Jesus each and every day. Now, in the Sermon on the Mount, Anonymous, there are a lot of things that we need to understand because they reveal to us the true heart of God. Every one of those things, when somebody strikes you on one cheek, turn the other cheek as well. Jesus did that. Forgiving others who have sinned against you. Jesus did that. So when we understand that the only way I can do these things is in the power of the Holy Spirit, and the only way I can do that is being with Jesus, then it should encourage us to spend all of our time all day with Jesus. Now let me say one other thing, because this kind of dovetails into Nancy's question a moment ago. 
You know, there are times that we think, well, who could be with Jesus all the time? Well, none of us are going to do it perfectly, but every one of us should want to do it perfectly. You know, I go through my day, and if I get busy and my mind gets occupied and I come to the realization that, you know, I've been here for 30 minutes and I haven't talked to the Lord, I haven't, I haven't been aware of His presence, I repent of that. Now, it's not like I'm beating myself up because I consider it a grievous sin. But the reason I repent of it is because that 30 minutes, just as an example, I got ripped off. I could have been with Jesus hanging out with me. This happens to me in conversations all the time. It also happens a lot when I'm out walking with the Lord and praying. You get to that place where we're praying for people, then your mind starts to wander, or people come into your mind and heart. I had a meeting today that was important, and so, uh, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm thinking about this meeting. Uh, and, and then I come to realization, well, wait a minute, Lord, I, I don't want to talk to them now. I want to talk to you. I want to talk to you about this meeting. I want to talk to you about my job. I want to talk to you about whatever it is that's going in our, in, in, in our lives, going on in our lives. So understand that when Jesus said with God all things are possible, they're only possible if we're with God. So every day be aware of the time that you're with Jesus and be aware of the time you're not. If you get angry and lose your temper, you're not with Jesus. You've left him behind. If you use foul language, you're not with Jesus. You've left him behind. If you're looking at something ugly on the computer, you're not with Jesus. If you're thinking about somebody and what they did to you and you're unwilling to forgive, you're not with Jesus. And it's pretty simple. All we have to do is understand that everything we do with Jesus, whether it's our job, hanging around with friends, um, doing things that we consider hobbies and fun, everything is better by far with Jesus. Here's a question from Jack. He says, Pastor on in heaven, will we actually see God as three separate persons? Uh, Jack, there's no way of knowing what we're going to see. We will see the distinction between the persons of the Godhead. But remember, only one of them has physicality. Only one is human in form. And of course, it's Jesus who is also fully God. So the Father, who lives in unapproachable light, when we are in heaven, we will be able to approach that light. Uh, The Holy Spirit is a spirit. So we don't see a a physical body, but, but we'll be able to commune and to talk with and to understand the mysteries of the Trinity. So, Jack, we will see three individual persons of the Godhead, one God, three persons, and we'll see that. What form that takes, I have no idea. I made somebody really angry one time, Jack, because I was talking about, uh, you know, when, when Jesus said we could call him Abba. That's a, a word that, that our best English translation is, is dad or daddy. And, and I always like the picture of when you, you've done something wrong, you can get on your daddy's lap and you can say, I'm so sorry, daddy. And he's going to say, it's okay, I love you. Well, we're not going to be able to, I had a question, are we going to be able to sit on our father's lap in heaven? No, he doesn't have a lap. But I can promise you this, whatever we see and whatever we can sit on, is going to be better than anything that we can imagine, Jay. Better by far. 340-9585 for your live calls and questions. A little over two minutes left. We'd love your live calls in the second half of the program. This one is anonymous. How can we best approach Catholics with the gospel? Um, Anonymous, uh, Catholics aren't hard to approach. Uh, They believe in the same Father, the same Son, and the same Holy Spirit. Um, I think the best approach is to take the same approach Jesus did with a religious person, Nicodemus, in John chapter 3. Talk to him about being born again. Talk to him about having surrendered your life. You know, one of the the things that we've run into with Catholics over and over and over, especially when people... By the way, when they say this to me as a pastor, they've been visiting our church. uh, I know they're getting really, really close. 
But they'll say things like, you know, I was born Catholic, I'm going to die Catholic. Well, you know that that's when the Lord is working on their heart. So here's what you do. You ask them, what makes them think that a religious exercise can give them access to God? Ask them, and I do this very directly. Have you ever lived even one day, one hour of your life just for Jesus? Do you believe that Catholics are going to get to heaven just by virtue of being Catholics? And then I'm able to tell them, that's why Jesus said to Nicodemus, you must be born again. So don't approach them in an argumentative way. Um, Don't start bashing their faith, their religion. But instead, sort of offer your Jesus, the personal relationship with your Jesus, like a dessert to a great meal. And often, anonymous, when you ask them if they've been born again, they'll get upset. But I always ask them, well, did you get upset when Jesus said it to Nicodemus? I want him to know it's an important biblical doctrine because except you man be born again, he won't inherit the kingdom of God. I hope that helps. We have 30 minutes left in the Tuesday edition of the program, 340-9585 for your live calls and questions. I'm Pastor Ron Arbaugh. We'll be back, Lord willing, in two minutes. to the word to stand on for life we're taking your calls at 340-9585 or toll free 877-630-KSLR now here's pastor ron arbaugh welcome back to our second half of the tuesday show 340-9585 here is a question from our mobile app from aa uh, in response to uh, the a question that I got earlier from Nancy. Uh, a says, for a carnal Christian, which version of the Holy Spirit exists of the three you just described? I described the para experience when the Spirit comes alongside. I described the N experience when uh, Jesus takes up residence in your heart. And then the upon experience where we have power. Now, a, a carnal Christian, now I'm going to assume, uh, for example, we know that Paul wrote to the church at Corinth, and he scolds them for all of their carnal behavior, but he calls them brothers. And sadly, uh, it is true that there are real Christians, people that are going to be in heaven, who are living their lives carnally. So if that's true, and they're real Christians, the Spirit of God is in them, but they are quenching the work of the Spirit that God wants to do. That's why Paul says, quench not the Holy Spirit of God. And then he says to the Ephesians, be ye filled, and continually be filled continually with the Holy Spirit. So what we have to understand is that if somebody's really a Christian, carnal or otherwise, then they're sealed with a deposit guaranteeing their inheritance. But they are quenching, putting out the power of the Spirit that he wants to demonstrate in and through us. So, uh, for a carnal Christian, now here's part of our problem. We don't know somebody who says they're a Christian and they're acting carnally. Um, we don't want to give them any opportunity to feel like, well, I'm safe, I'm secure. Uh, I think the Bible is intentionally written a, a, to, to make us feel really uncomfortable about our security and to feel condemned when we're living carnal lives. You know, our security comes from Jesus, and, and that's from our nearness to him, our time with him. If we pushed him off somewhere, then then we're not ever going to feel very secure. That's why the 1 Corinthians 6 passage and the Galatians 5 passage, where it lists these lifestyles of sin, Paul is very clear in both places. People who live like this will not inherit the kingdom of God. And what he's suggesting is that there are a whole bunch of people that say they're Christians who aren't really Christians, and they have no experience with the Holy Spirit. Now, here's something else to consider, AA. If you are a carnal Christian and really a believer, you ought then also to have the para-experience, the with-experience, because the Holy Spirit who lives in you is always going to be trying to get your attention when you're living um, in, a, in a manner that suggests that you don't know God. 
Jesus, for example, the man who was sleeping with his stepmother in 1 Corinthians chapter 5. Well, we know a letter written six months later, 2 Corinthians chapter 2, the Holy Spirit was convicting this man of his wrong. So he was coming beside him, sort of like nudging him, saying, you know that's wrong, you know it's wrong, you know it's wrong. And, and because of the actions that Paul took in 1 Corinthians, he repented of his sin and was welcomed back into the fellowship. That proved he was a Christian. So two versions are at work in the carnal Christian. If, if somebody's a real believer, the inexperience, you're sealed with this deposit, a guarantee of your inheritance. But if that's true, then you're also going to have this para-experience where he's going to come alongside you and convict you of sin. What you're doing is wrong. You know it's wrong. You need to repent. All of that to say that if you're counting on being a carnal Christian, be really, really careful if you're not being convicted of sin. I worry deeply, AA, about Christians, professing Christians, who can sin and say, oh, I'm not convicted by it at all. Because if the Holy Spirit is doing his job, and he always does, then he's going to knock on the door of our heart and convict us. So the man and the woman that can do things they know are wrong, things they know displease God, and feel no conviction by the Holy Spirit, then most likely they're not real Christians at all. So, A, I hope that explains it. Two out of the three. Three four zero ninety five eighty five. here is a question from Amanda. Uh, what's the best way to grow in our faith in service? Um, Amanda, there's, there's only one way, and I, I say this so often in the program, I don't want people to tune it out. This is the most theologically deep statement anybody can ever make. Just be with Jesus. You see, that's the way to grow. When you're with Jesus, he takes you into situations and takes you through places and through experiences that you couldn't have in any other way. And then you begin to become more like him. And you learn to learn more about him. Obviously, you need to be a woman who loves her Bible. You've got to know who this Jesus is, the one who's asking you to trust him. Isn't it hard to trust a stranger? Especially when it looks, at least on the appearance of things, like nothing makes sense. Well, the way that we grow in our faith is to learn who he is. The next way is to learn how much he loves you. Let me suggest to you reading the Song of Solomon or the Song of Songs. Just the parts that are subtitled lover in your Bible. That's Jesus speaking to you. You've got to know how much he loves you. And once you understand how much he loves you and you accept the fact that you're beloved by God, that you're accepted in the beloved, well, then you can begin to really, really exercise your faith. And make no mistake, faith has to be exercised. Be faithful in little things. And God will take you to bigger things. Don't wait just for big things. Be faithful in little things. Amanda, serve your church. Wherever you go to church, go to your pastor, go to somebody, a ministry leader, and say, you know what? I want to serve the Lord. What, what can I do? And in every church, there's a million things that need to be done. And serve with the joy of the Lord, whether it's tiny things, things where nobody sees what you're doing, or things that are public. serve faithfully and then God will take you on a wonderful adventure and you will grow by leaps and bounds in your faith a verse that we all know from Proverbs chapter 3 lean not on your own understanding but in all of your ways depend on him discard what makes sense and take everything to God with grateful hearts. Take everything to God in prayer. Let him teach you how to make decisions. If there's a decision that has to be made, he wants you to make the one that's in his perfect will. So in combination with being with Jesus and being in his word, 
and learning to trust him, he'll tell you what's yes and what's no. But you got to trust him. Big faith, I just did a study on this not too long ago. Big faith always begins as little tiny faith. And when you take those little tiny steps, you'll find yourself getting bigger and bigger and bigger steps. And pretty soon you're going to learn that everything that he has for you is so wonderful, you don't want to miss out on any of it. And Amanda, that's the way you're going to grow in your faith. Here is another anonymous question. It says, I have a question about gender. Since God created them male and female, could it be possible that some people get the wrong genes? Uh, Anonymous, when it says that God created them male and female, he's talking about Adam and Eve. He made Adam male, distinctly male. He made Eve distinctly female. He doesn't give both of us part of the other. So it's very important we understand this. You know, I've seen that verse misused by those who uh, claim to be Christians and yet are lost in this transgenderism issue. Confused about who they are. They're confused about who they are because they won't accept the facts that are before them. They can look in a mirror and see their physicality. This is who I am. They can take a DNA test and they can say, well, here's the results. I'm male or I'm female. You don't take a DNA test and get male and female. I had a pastor friend of mine once at a men's retreat. He said, men, you don't have a feminine side. God took it out of that side when he created Eve. So this whole gender question is the easiestly, more, more, most easily answered question of all, Anonymous. You are who you have been born to be. And that he made Adam male and Eve female was by his design and it's the only acceptable design in the world that we live in. Now, I've taken a lot of heat for saying that. But the most unloving thing that we can do is allow somebody to give in to their confusion. When the answer is right before them. You know, the confusion is that they're in rebellion against God. The confusion is that they want what they want instead of what God wants. And we all know how it works. When people rebel against God, it never works out well. Ask Cain. Cain, if you do what is right, will it not go well with you? That's all we have to do. Well, that same question is being asked by the Lord all the time. So could some people get the wrong genes? No. You are your DNA. Biology doesn't make mistakes. Our psychology does. And usually it's because we want to have those mistakes. So I hope that answers the question. Here is a question from Reggie. He wants to know, why do some people get healed and others don't? And why is there so much suffering in the world if God loves people? Well, Reggie, let me take the second one first. Why is there so much suffering in the world if God loves people? Well, the fact that God loves people is not in dispute. For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son that whosoever believes in him would not perish but have everlasting life. God loves. The proof of his love is that he gave not just something, he gave the most valuable thing he had himself. That proves it once and for all. He died for your sins. He took the punishment that your sins and mine deserved. If that doesn't prove that he loves us, I don't know what else would. Now, the issue of suffering is completely different. I still can never understand. I understand the emotions behind this question, Reggie. But I want people to think logically. Why in the world would we blame a God who created everything perfect, made us, created us humans, even though he knew that we were going to mess it up? Why would we blame him for messing things up? When people suffer, it's not because of God. It's not anything that he desired. We suffer because we rebel against God. We suffer because we live in a world that is in rebellion against God. 
So we suffer individually, a lot of times self-inflicted, but, but the world is suffering as well. Paul says that the whole earth groans, eagerly expecting that day when it will be made well. Why would we blame God for that? Hurricane comes. That would never happen in God's unfallen world. An earthquake, a volcano, we've seen all of these things recently. People shooting up. Large crowds of people. Why would we even for a moment consider that God was responsible for any of that? It's humans who do those things. We other humans have to accept responsibility for that. And for those of us who know Jesus, when you see these terrible things happen, when you see the horrible suffering in this world, we can cry out and groan in our spirit like creation does. Lord, this isn't the way you intended things to be. Come quickly, Lord Jesus. And we can pray for people, but when Christians can't answer this simple question, why is there suffering? It's our fault, Reggie. It's our fault. Now, the other question I don't have an answer for. Why do some get healed and others don't? We don't know the sovereign will of God in these matters of healing. The beggar at the gate beautiful that I talked about in an earlier question, the first half of the program. How many times do you think Jesus walked by that beggar at the beautiful gate? I mean, that was the area where Jesus did a lot of his ministry and people got healed. Do you think Jesus walked by him day after day after day, maybe winked at him as if to say, hey, don't worry, not too distant future, you're going to get your turn. Why did he get healed? I'll give you one even closer to home. Why did James, one of Jesus' inner circle, the brother of John, why was he the first martyr of the church? Of the original apostles, he is the first one that died. And his brother John lived to be in his mid-90s. Now, John suffered a lot, but he lived to be in his mid-90s. Why, when James was put in jail, only to be beheaded, why wasn't he rescued by an angel who came to him in the night and, and set him free, like Peter was in the book of Acts? We don't know the answers to those questions, but here's what we know. We know that all things work together for the good of those who love God and who are called according to his purpose. So, Reggie, why does somebody get healed? I don't know, but we rejoice when it happens. Why does somebody not get healed? We don't know, but we mourn, we grieve when that happens. We rejoice with those who rejoice, we mourn with those who mourn. I hope that answers your question. 340-9585. Here's a question from Natalie. She wants to know, what does 1 Timothy chapter 2 mean when it says that women will be saved by childbirth? Natalie, nobody knows for sure. This is the portion of Scripture where uh, Paul is giving an explanation going back to Genesis to lay a foundation as to why God doesn't permit a woman to teach or have authority over a man. He says, for Eve was, Adam was formed first, that's priority, and it was Eve who was deceived and not Adam. So clearly that women can't be pastors in this particular context. I would also add clearly the reason women are to submit to the leadership of their husbands has nothing to do with their husbands being superior leaders. What it has everything to do with is this was a result of the curse and what Paul says is accept your role. Now, that it says in the last verse there that women will be saved by childbirth, um, there's a lot of dispute about what that means. Again, I don't think anybody knows. There's a definite article in there. So it could be women, though they are uh, subject to this curse, though they can't have authority or teach men in church. They can't be pastors, we would say. They can still enjoy their salvation on the basis of the child, of course, Christ, that was born. There are some who 
think that's the answer. I'm ambivalent about that. I don't know. I don't think that meets the context. I think what Paul is saying is this is a reference to natural childbirth, which is the function of a mom, and their calling by God will be ensured. They can walk in the perfect will of God by virtue of accepting the roles in life that God gave them. Now, please don't misunderstand. We're not saying that women can only have babies. That's their value to God. Uh, that that's Nothing can be farther from the truth. In that culture, Paul might have had that meaning. But I think the bigger meaning is that when we accept the role given to us by God, then there's salvation from the trials and tribulations of this world. Now, we also know, Natalie, that this cannot possibly mean that you get saved by having a child. We know a lot of women that have had babies who want nothing to do with God and have done evil things. And so they're they're not saved. They're not going to be in heaven. So that's not what Paul's talking about. Because we have to read everything in context, we've got to find a way to connect what he said. A woman cannot have authority over a man or teach a man in church. And then he comes up with this. I think what he's saying is you want to find the fulfilling calling of your life? Accept the role God has given you. When you do that, then everything else changes. Now, even as I answer that question, Natalie, people have been arguing for 2,000 years about what's meant by that. And I don't think my radio program is going to answer that question with any finality at all. Jason wants to know, has the church replaced Israel in God's kingdom? No, no, a thousand times no. Uh, Israel, God's specially chosen people, the apple of his eye, uh, they always have had and always will have a special place in the kingdom of God. And God has to fulfill, Jason, all of his promises to Israel, the promises made to Abraham, the first Jew, to Isaac and Jacob, the patriarchs, to Moses and to David. So um, if, if the church just suddenly takes all of God's promises from Israel, then it means that God's not a promise keeper. And if God's not a promise keeper, Jason, we're all lost. So no, the church is the church. The people of Israel are the people of Israel. And God is going to fulfill every promise. One other thought on this, Jason. Israel, the name means governed by God. And anybody, individual Jews that are governed by God, um, then the promises God made to those who are governed by God are their promises. Those are the people who are going to find their way into a New Testament relationship with God. But uh, all the promises made to Israel are theirs and theirs alone. Um, the, the doctrine, Jason, that says that church has replaced Israel or that God has done with Israel, uh, with all of my heart and with all of my strength, I believe, is a, a doctrine of demons. So we have to be very, very careful. No phone calls. Heaven wants to know. Great name, Heaven. How do you know when it's time to leave a church? Uh, Heaven, it's time to leave a church when the Word is not being taught or when it's being taught falsely. It's time to leave a church when you're not growing, um, when there's no opportunity to use the gifts that God has given you. It's time to leave a church when that church is um, affirming sin or being unwilling to deal with sin in the body, uh, it's time to leave a church in all those instances. Um, so often, you know, we, we grow up in a church, we stay in a church, our friends are at the church. Well, none of that is a reason to stay at a church. Church is the place we go to be equipped to do the work of ministry. If there's no opportunity in your church to use your gifts then it's time to leave that church. If the Word's not being taught and you're not growing, leave. But don't stay just because you have friends there or because you've got roots there because you've been there a long time. Let the Lord thrill you by sending you in a completely different direction and you'll walk right in the middle of His perfect, pleasing will. So, heaven, I hope that answers your question. Don't leave just because you're mad. Don't leave because somebody offended you. Don't leave because there is a single point of doctrine that you have a difference of opinion on. 
Leave because you're not growing. Leave because you don't see the obvious work of the Holy Spirit. And can I add one other thing, Heaven? Leave when you don't see love in the church. One of the things that you can't miss when you walk into our church is not true just of our church. But you walk into our church, you, you look at these crazy people and all you can think is, wow, these people really love each other. And then the second conclusion, if you've been around for a little bit, wow, these crazy people really love Jesus. That's where the life of the church comes from, from its love. If we don't love him, we don't love others, that's when it's time to recognize that we're not in a really good church. Well, I've only got a minute, but I just told I've got my first phone call. Roland on line one. Roland, it's late, but what's your question? Sir, in Israel... I know they're Israelites. Are they also Jewish people? When I pray for them, what do I pray for? The Israelites or the Jewish people or both of them? Yeah, I, th- I think they're, they're, this, they're one and the same. I think uh, it's more effective, Roland, to, play, to pray for individual Jews. So what I, I pray is, is, Lord, the people you love, help them to love you back, remove the veil that covers their heart. Uh, if you're praying for Israel, typically you're praying for Israel nationally, and, and, and we should be men and women who pray for the, the, the country, the nation of Israel, uh, because we have an investment. We're going to live there. We're going to be serving there at some point. So uh, one and the same, but kind of make a distinction between the individual Jews and the nation. Roland, thank you for the call. Try to call earlier next time. You've been listening to The Word to Stand On For Life. I'm Pastor Ron Arbaugh from Calvary Chapel in San Antonio, Texas. You'll never know how much I appreciate you tuning in. May the Lord bless you and keep you. Lord willing, I'll be back tomorrow at 4 on AM 630 The Word. Thanks for spending this time with Calvary Chapel's The Word to Stand On for Life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. The Word to Stand On for Life is on every weekday afternoon at 4, and Pastor Ron invites you to find out more about Calvary Chapel at calvarysa.com. The Word to Stand On for Life was sponsored by Calvary Chapel of San Antonio. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.